Hey there, language lovers. Shannon Kennedy here, along with Benny Lewis. We're the hosts of the Language Hacking Podcast, back with another episode. We're chatting with Scott Brills, who runs Safaris and Treks, is an impressive world traveler and friend to Benny. In this episode, we discuss living abroad at a young age in Japan, combating loneliness and fear, living on your own in another country, how to get through the roadblocks on the path to fluency, why you sometimes need to be thrown in the deep end, leading culinary tours in Japan and safaris in Tanzania, taking part in the Mongol rally, driving through 16 countries for charity and learning to rely on the support of strangers, traveling across India in a tuk-tuk on three different occasions, learning a language by quote-unquote faking comprehension, and gaining the confidence to approach complete strangers in another language. If you enjoy this episode of the podcast, you can listen to the longer extended edition of this episode over on Patreon. In the longer form version of this episode, only available to our Patreon subscribers, we talk about dealing with the logistics of building work and making a living in other countries, how to fit in language learning as a busy entrepreneur, what the host's favorite languages are, what languages the host struggled with the most, memorable gaffes the hosts made in their languages, Scott's ideal day of language learning, and Scott's three language survival resources. You can learn more and get access to our extended episodes and other benefits at languagehacking.com slash Patreon. And of course, once again, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, we always appreciate hearing from you. You can let us know what you think over at languagehacking.com slash review. Now let's get into our chat with Scott. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 101. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast. Today, I have invited a very good friend of mine, Scott Brills. And I think a lot of you who listen in would know, would probably know me as one of the, the best traveled people uh, that you've heard of in terms of I've been on the road for 20 years. I've had loads of adventures. But when I think of somebody who is very well traveled and who has ridiculously interesting stories to tell from on the road, that is Scott. So, you know, when I am talking up a traveler, that that definitely means something. So Scott runs the Safari and the Kilimanjaro Trek company that I personally went on. And he does loads of other cultural immersion experiences. And of course, by uh, being so well-traveled, he has, of course, immersed himself in, in multiple languages. So we're going to talk about that experience. And thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today, Scott. Howdy. Howdy from uh, Dallas, Texas. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I'm going to let you give your own introduction of how you ended up in Japan specifically, and how that uh, as a kind of a language learning experience changed how you may have learned languages in school initially. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start from the beginning then. It was a cold winter's day in 1982. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in, in high school, like uh, a lot of people, at least in the US, I'm sure many other countries, uh, you are uh, required to learn a language. You're required to study it for two years. And in my school, that was either uh, German, French, Spanish, or Japanese. We were one of the few schools in the area that had Japanese, actually. However, I thought, well, Japanese seems to be very difficult, so I'm just going to go the easy route and take Spanish. So I did two years of Spanish. I did, didn't really click for me. I got uh, more or less straight C's, uh, you know, which is not a, a great grade for those that aren't on the American grading scale. 
then uh, I took a year off from learning in my uh, junior year of high school. And then on my final year of high school, when I was a senior, I decided to give it a shot and take uh, Japanese, which happened to be taught by a family friend who had gone to Japan and who now just taught at the high school level. And so I gave it a shot and I was getting A's. I was like, how is this possible? I thought it's supposed to be a more difficult language. Obviously, they don't use the uh, Latin alphabet you know, most of the time to to write the language. And there's three different alphabets instead. There's hiragana, katakana, and kanji. And I thought, like, how does, does this even work? How do you know when to use one, not the other and everything? Um, but for whatever reason, and I think the main thing is that I wanted to do it. I actually was pretty proficient at it. And so at the end of that year, my teacher said, you know, I was the only senior in that class. Everyone else was freshmen, sophomores, you know, below me in age. She said, I'd like to recommend that you do a study abroad in Japan, the same program I did when I was coming out of high school. So I gave it a shot, applied, got in, went over there and spent uh, the majority of my freshman year of college for the first time ever living alone in Japan with 16 other students on a work-study program for nine months in Otsu, Japan, which is about a 10-minute train ride from Kyoto, which is a city that most people will be more familiar with. And I had an amazing, amazing time. It was life-altering in so many ways. Obviously, I was, I was young, you know, 18, 19 years old, so uh, you know, living on my own more or less for the first time. And that was a, uh, a big thing in itself, but to do it in Japan gave it even more of a, just made it more into like a life-altering experience for me. Yeah, I ended up uh, staying there, loved it, uh, learned the language pretty well uh, you know, because I was more or less forced to use it because uh, I wanted to connect with people and most of them didn't speak English. And then uh, after that, I ended up going back again every almost every single year. Uh, to the point where now I've been there 17 times. Um, I run two businesses that are based in Japan, and I've I've worked there, lived there, studied there. I was uh, working on a, at a ski lodge in Nagano in 2002 and 2003. Uh, yeah, I've I've had quite the uh, the gamut of experiences over there. So it's it's still a, a very big part of my life, and I can attribute it all to honestly that high school Japanese class I had when I was 16, 17. I have a lot of questions for you about your language learning journey, but before we get into that, I want to talk to you a little bit about your experience traveling abroad so young. Uh, you, Benny, and I have all had this experience where, you know, really early on, we went over, lived in, experienced other countries. But I know for a lot of people, and even for myself at the time, I was really nervous because you go over and you're very alone. Even if you go as a part of a group or a class, you kind of feel quite isolated from your family and support system in those situations. And you're doing things in another language, functioning in another language. So how how do you kind of combat some of that nervousness whenever you go over to a new place and are suddenly hit with this completely new environment and lifestyle? Uh, so, so definitely going with that group where not only did we have other students uh, around the same age, I was the second youngest just by a few months. So I was, I was definitely the, the young one of the group. Uh, a lot of people had already had uh, college experiences. They'd been to bars and lived on campus and whatnot. Um, so a lot of them kind of took me in as their younger brother and kind of taught me the ropes of <laughs> living on your own. And uh, even though nobody, almost nobody had any Japanese experience as far as like uh, living there and some of them didn't even have pretty much any Japanese language experience going over. What made it easier is that our jobs were already set up. We were waiters on this replica Mississippi steam wheeler ship called the Michigan and from Michigan. And so that's why there's like a sister state relationship between Michigan and Shiga Prefecture, which is where we're at. So we had our 
we had our schedule already kind of sussed out for us. We, you know, we went to work on these days. We went to school um, on these days. The school was in a first floor of our apartment building. We all lived together. So it was kind of like a, a dorm situation. We all had roommates uh, that we picked, you know, from the other students that we had just met, you know, a few months earlier. And uh, it, it was very structured. And, and we kind of knew what to expect going over there. Obviously, there was a lot of surprises. Uh, but... It was it was comfortable enough where you soon made new friends, whether they were the people you're working and living and studying with or the people that you would meet working with the, the, the Japanese crew that also worked alongside you on the boat. Or um, I had actually started talking to some pen pals before I went over there just through email. You know, I, I got really into it before I went over. I really I researched everything. I got so deep into it, listening to the music and whatnot, you know, which is which is easier to do when you're uh, you know more or less a kid, you know, and, and you don't have a ton of responsibility. Uh, and you're not working full time. Uh, so so that kind of took care of that. And then uh, as far as like the homesickness or uh, longing for your family and whatnot, honestly, I was so deep into it and I was so excited and making the most out of every minute. I didn't really have any homesickness. Um, that can't be said for all of the students over there, for sure. But I was just so geeked to be over there. And, and the only thing I could think of when I got back from Japan, back to the US was how do I get back over there? And of course, I still had like three years of university left. Uh, so I was thinking, okay, how can I get this done as quickly as possible and get back? Because some of my friends, like I said, they were already older, the people I, I studied and lived and worked with, they were already starting to go back and becoming English teachers and whatnot, because they all loved it too. I mean, I would say the majority of people really loved it. And so I uh, I ended up taking, you know, double double course loads during summer semesters. And it, it was it was crazy. I was I ended up uh, graduating in two and a half years, yeah, a four-year degree. <laughs> so, and it's funny because after that, I was like, all right, time to go to Japan. And uh, I had gotten my business up to a point where I thought, okay, if I leave, I'm going to kind of give up in the business. And I started dating a girl and I would have had to give that up too. And I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll just kind of wait on the moving to Japan thing, becoming an English teacher, like all my friends. And I never actually ended up doing that. But, you know, I've, like I mentioned, I've, I've gotten into Japan and kept it a part of my life in different ways. So going back a little bit to the language experience of all this, because you, you did have those first two years of Spanish. And like you said, you are a C student. So what do you think was different about Japanese? And like, like you mentioned, there are multiple writing systems in it, and it's a vastly different language compared to European languages. So how did you get over these typical roadblocks that make Japanese difficult to be at the stage where you can genuinely communicate fluently in the language? So it was a multi-step process. One was, I believe I really wanted to learn it. Um, at the time, the impetus wasn't, you know, to go to Japan necessarily or anything. I didn't find out about that till the end of the uh, year in high school. It was because I was pretty geeky and liked anime and video games. And I thought, oh man, there's like so much good stuff coming out of Japan that's not translated into English. I'd love to be able to read it myself. That was actually the, the impetus for this. And, and so like, you know, it was upon myself to decide to do this. I didn't have to do it. I had already fulfilled my language requirements. Uh, so, you know, this is totally my own choice to take it. And then it's not my choice necessarily to do good, but I think that that uh, contributes to doing well in that environment. Uh, also, the the teacher I had, uh, Mrs. Newcomb, she was very great uh, at teaching us. And even though I was an older student in her class, it was cool to uh, just learn the basics of everyone. So we only learned hiragana, katakana, and just the bare minimum of kanji. It's like any first year language class. You really start with the basics. And I would say even more so with Japanese, just because because there, there is a little bit more to unpack with the different writing systems and whatnot. But 
after that, it's funny because I went to Japan. And it's a, here's a fun little story. So the first night we were in Japan, all the guys went out. We're like, hey, we're going to go out and grab some beers or something. I've never had a drink in my life. I was like, okay, I'll go with you. So I'm leading the way more or less because I am the one with the most language proficiency at that time. So everyone's like following me. I have no idea what, where I'm going or what I'm doing, but I just walk in a straight direction from our housing area. And we walk and we walk and we walk. We finally get to some buildings. It looks like it may have like a bar or something in it. And they're like, hey, Scott, can you ask someone? So I go over to a taxi driver and I say, um, excuse me, where is beer? Because <laughs> I didn't even know how to say bar. Then I can teach you how to say bar <laughs> in high school. And uh, so the word for beer and building sounds very same in Japanese. So the taxi driver's like, what building? And at least I knew it's like, oh, oh, wait, I have to elongate the I. So instead of biru, it's biru. That's the difference in the two words. And he's like, oh, well, you can go to that area over, you know, beyond us. And uh, there's beer over there. And at that point, I was so jet lagged. And also, like, I didn't want to drink. So I was like, hey, guys, just go over there and uh, you'll find it. And of course, they all ended up having the time of their lives. <laughs> I always regretted not going with them uh, because they they found uh, they connected with a guy who owned a bar. And I actually later on in the year ended up DJing there and becoming friends with him. And I even bartended and stuff. So yeah, it's it's just one of those things that always stuck with me. I'm like, oh man, you should always say yes. <laughs> so going on from Japan, you've traveled to other places and have learned several other languages. So can you talk a little bit about what that journey looked like for you? I primarily went to Japan for the first few years during college, after college, just because I wanted to keep going back, visiting my friends, the people I studied with and worked with, my Japanese friends. Obviously, it's it's comfortable because you know the language, you know how to get around. Um, and I honestly just love the country. It wasn't until 2008 that I actually traveled to Asia and, and Europe for the first time. Uh, I did a, a cultural exchange to Turkey through Rotary International. And that was a big eye opener just to be like, hey, there's more of the world to see. And I loved my time in Turkey. Uh, I learned some Turkish because they put me with host families that didn't even know any Turkish at all. So I, I had to learn quick, like the first host, the first three days and nights. I'd be eating with them. And I had my uh, like Lonely Planet language guide with me and I'm just like looking up things to say. So it's, I think it's uh, one thing that helps is to be kind of like thrown in the deep end. <laughs> you know, and it's like, if you want to communicate with people, you got to learn it because there's no other option. Uh, so that was my first experience learning something of my own volition after Japan uh, was Turkish. And I've been back to Turkey quite a few times since. I've also lived there for a little bit. And I think that that furthered my drive to just kind of explore more. Like I said, I went to Europe after that. Beyond that, once my businesses were a little bit more further along, I had the time and the money to, to travel beyond there. So now I've been to about 100 countries. I've been lucky enough to live in a few of them, such as uh, Japan, Thailand, Turkey, uh, Colombia. And wherever I go, I just naturally, I want to communicate with people. I don't want to just stay in my, my foreigner bubble. Uh, so that drives me to learn the language. So I've, I've also learned a little bit of Thai, uh, enough to get around and, you know, not get scammed in Bangkok, uh, which is, <laughs> which I found the, the first time I visited. And, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I think it's just a natural drive to, to connect with people on the ground, uh, that leads me to, to learn these. I wouldn't say I haven't learned any language as well as I have learned Japanese just for the amount of time and effort and proper schooling and everything that went into that. But I am, you know, I can get around in many countries, including Spanish-speaking ones. <laughs> now, <laughs> I finally went back and, and learned at least a, a decent amount of it. So going back to Japan, like one thing that you were saying is that you just had this drive from the very start to really dive into Japanese culture. 
that's not the same for a lot of people. A lot of travelers, when they go to other countries, especially countries that are as foreign as somewhere like Japan, that they find it difficult to get that integration and they end up having a bit more of a touristy experience. And one thing I like about your businesses is you actually try to create a cultural immersive experience for those who are uh, going to the country that you happen to know and you act as this uh, this bridge between those two cultures. So it, with Japan, for instance, you do these food tours each year. So how did, how did that start and how do you try to introduce truly locally immersive cultural experiences through food to people from the other side of the world? So uh, that came about because I love Japan and I love food. And I thought, how fun would it be to introduce my friends to Japan for the first time through food? You know, Japan is one of those spots you could do it. You, you're not, you know, there's some places in the world that might not be so, so doable, such as like Mongolia. You know, you're just eating, uh, you know, greasy lamb noodles all the time. <laughs> but uh, with Japan, you know, you, they have a, such a wide variety of cuisines um, and it really makes it easy to do that. So I started in 2014 uh, just gathering together some friends. Some are friends of Benny as well. And we did... Uh, a tour through there, through the country where I use food as a way to introduce the country and the people and the history. And I kind of tried to integrate everything together whenever I could. It wasn't just solely focused on food. You know, we were going to temples and I was explaining like traditional shojin ryori with like temple cuisine that the monks would eat that is uh, vegetarian, you know, and I would try to like, uh, we would go to the tea plantations and find out how the tea cultivation worked uh, and the people that worked there. And then we would go to the house of uh, a chef at a Michelin restaurant and see how he forages in the mountains every morning for the food and where that type of cuisine, the kaiseki ryori, came from and whatnot. And so I found it very easy to do for Japan. And I try to show people and educate people about the things I love just because it's it's fun for me. And I continued doing that. I went back again in 2016 with another group and in 2017 and 2018, 19. So uh, we were actually just going to make it like a proper business uh, right when COVID hit. So that was kind of put on the on the side burner. But um, yeah, it's, it's been really fun uh, taking groups over there and, and showing them around. And I've, I've introduced quite a few friends to Japan for the first time. And many of them have gone back on their own. And so I, I feel like I, it was a job well done. So in addition to these tours, you also do safaris and other sorts of adventures. So can you talk a little bit about those as well? Yeah. So even before the the Japan culinary tour started, I started uh, doing safaris, which is kind of an odd tangent for me. Never really expected to get into travel and tourism. I, I love to travel and, and tour everywhere, but I never expected to get into that line of business. I actually started off as a web and graphic designer and IT guy. So I, I just happened to go over to Tanzania with my father in 2010. We had a great time. I, I love animals. I love nature. I love traveling. Um, and then one of the three guides that was uh, leading our group of 16 Americans, uh, Josh, he was really great at what he did. He was very affable. He was very knowledgeable, great English. And he helped me out after the trip uh, with some of my logistics. I was staying after, so my father went home, everyone else went home, and I stayed on. I, I visited Zanzibar for about a week. I climbed Kilimanjaro with a friend of mine, and so when I got back from all that, on the last day, he invited me to his house, met his family. He had a wife and two kids at that time, three kids now, and I said, man, you're so good at what you do. Have you ever thought about doing your own thing? And at that time, he'd already been a guide for 12, 13 years, and uh, he's like, no, not, not, 
really, you know, I was thinking about doing my own thing, you know, my own biz side businesses and whatnot. So I said, what about we partner up? I know your target market. I know how to start or run a business remotely, which I'd learned through through my IT and uh, and my web development stuff. And so I thought, you know, let, let's give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, it's mostly my time that I'm putting into it from from the beginning. And, um, you know, let's let's just see what happens. And so the next year in 2011, we started the company Pomoja Safaris and Pomoja means together in Swahili and safaris means uh, travel. So travel together. And uh, here we are over 10 years later and it's still going great. And so I, I go over there every year for about two months and and hang out with Josh and do a few uh, safaris while we're there, some friends and family safaris. But it's running year round. He does everything on the ground. I do the rest of the stuff and we split uh, the workload and the profits 50-50 you know, more or less. So one of the other things that you've done is you've taken part in the Mongol rally. So for someone who doesn't know what that is, could you explain briefly what it is and then how it changed you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so in 2008, uh, I happened to see a magazine article about a guy who uh, drove from England to Mongolia for charity. Uh, his name is Tom Morgan. And I showed it to my buddy who uh, was kind of my, my best bud at the time. And I said, hey, want to do this? And so he's like, I'm in. It's basically a, a charity rally from England to Mongolia. You use a, a crappy car that's like one liter engine or 1.2 liter engine, and you drive it over there with pretty much as little preparation as possible and spend as little on the car as possible and see how far you can make it. You know, if you're lucky, you'll get to Mongolia. And uh, before you start, you you uh, raise money for charity. Uh, and it could be some for the official organizers charity. The organizers are called the Adventurous. And they're based in in the UK. And then anything over and above that you can raise for your own charity. So I partnered with Rotary Club in Mongolia. I just kind of reached out to a bunch of them. And the one that <laughs> messaged me back, uh, there was a lady named Bridget from Germany who had married an American and then moved to Hong Kong and then moved to Mongolia and started up a German bakery in Ulaanbaatar. Very interesting woman. She reached back to me. She was president of the club. She said, hey, we're raising funds to build a kindergarten in rural Mongolia. We'd love to have your support. So we raised some money for that. And we set off uh, at the age of, let's see, it was 25, 26. Uh, we got a crappy car in the US. We fixed it up as best we could with a, a friend's help, a mechanic that we knew. And then we drove it to to the East Coast, shipped it to England, went over to England, picked it up and drove from there. And we drove through, I think it was uh, 16 countries, uh, about 10,000 miles or so over towards Mongolia. However, we broke down in Tajikistan on the Pamir Highway, just past uh, Khorog, and we were seven hours away from any city. We had to hitchhike back. Uh, eventually, basically, a, a local mafia guy picked us up, took us to sleep on the floor of his unfinished hotel, uh, helped us like find a flatbed truck to like put the car on, and brought it back. And then nobody was able to fix it, so we sold it to him for a thousand dollars in U.S. bills. And uh, then we hitchhiked back and hitchhiked back 24 hours back to the the capital of Dushanbe and waited a week. Uh, for a flight out, and we flew to Almaty, Kazakhstan, and then we waited another week before we could get out of there. My buddy, he had run out of money, he'd run out of time, and his girlfriend was pregnant. So he had to leave. Uh, I flew on to Novosibirsk, Russia, grabbed the Trans-Siberian Express over to Ulaanbaatar by myself for three days, uh, made some friends on the train, got to Ulaanbaatar, Bridget picked me up, 
I said, hey, just FYI, I'm going to remote uh, you know, Gobi Desert to run a marathon in a few days if you want to come with me. So I signed up to run a full marathon, having had no running experience, no practice, no proper gear before I found out that she signed up for the 5K fun run. Uh, ended up going down there. It's about 16-hour drive through the desert. Uh, ran my first marathon, uh, I'd say. <laughs> Not running the first time, the whole time, but I uh, ran, walked it, got lost, was rescued by a nomad, and finished it. And then uh, ended up going back uh, to the capital and eventually made my way back to uh, to London, to U.S., and finished my journey there. So that was that was one of my uh, first forays into like proper adventure, uh, where you know you just go and you rely on the kindness of strangers more or less the entire time. You know, we didn't have smartphones, and so it was always just like stop asking for directions the car would break down a bunch of times you know and so had to ask for help uh, when it broke down the last time in tajikistan like a family took us in and we lived with them for a few days trying to sort everything out it was very cool to go to all these countries i knew pretty much nothing about you know central asia especially and and just to see the just how friendly everyone was and how how helping everyone was 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 really cool and it really opened up my mind to traveling to even more remote places because this is just the year after i'd just done turkey and just done europe for the first time so i still was pretty uh, pretty much a novice at traveling and this you know made it you know i was just it opened my mind and i was like oh, okay well the world's not a scary place and for the most part everyone's just trying to help out their fellow man yeah so i, I continued on from there and did a lot more adventures after that yeah, I mean, Scott could share so many stories of hilarious and fascinating, uh, really immersive experiences. And one that I think is especially inspiring for people who who might feel intimidated by uh, not really accepting yet the idea of what you said, that people are open and friendly and, and they're very happy to help you, is another experience where you took a, a very small vehicle and you did the, the entire Indian subcontinent in a tuk-tuk and this is just ridiculous because like the this is not a long distance vehicle and by by its very nature you're going to be stuck in little villages and you're going to have to talk to locals so how did that experience come about and what interesting experiences did you have with uh with locals that you otherwise would not have had had you been a normal tourist yeah, so the, the same uh, organization, the Adventurists, that put on the Mongol Rally also put on another trip called uh, the Rickshaw Run. And it is basically, they, they supply the this rickshaw. So it's, it's called a tuk-tuk or an auto rickshaw is what they call it in India. So it has a small engine. That's like a lawnmower engine, basically, seven horsepower and three wheels. And it's got enough room for a driver in the front and then maybe two people in back. You can squeeze in more, but don't recommend it, especially if you're uh, American sized, <laughs> as I am, you know, trying to uh, kind of get my six foot three frame into the into the driver's side. And you they set a start, a start line, they set a finish line and they're like, go. There's no proper route. There's no assistance along the way. You, know, you learn how to drive the thing three days before you start. I'd never driven a geared vehicle before. You know, in the U.S., it's all about automatic vehicles, and so I'd never done that before. And I had just learned how to ride a motorcycle to get my motorcycle license for this um, a few months earlier. So I, had, I was very, very green. And so we started this. Uh, I started with my buddy, Mike, uh, who's a friend from college, who also spent some time in Japan. And we uh, we gave it a go. And that first that first hour or so, we drove off the start line, basically right into a monsoon. 
<laughs> I just remember skidding all over the place, not knowing how to change gears properly and whatnot. And by day three, we had already toasted our engine and we needed to stop in a small village and find some people to rebuild the engine. Uh, which amazingly we did. We just watched them for like six or seven hours while they took apart every piece of it and rebuilt it. And in the end, you know, we paid like $40. Um, and that was our first foray into, you know, the kindness of the, of the people there in India. And we had tons of adventures after that as well. Um, and I, at the end of that, I think we both said, uh, you know, this is, this is about two weeks later, maybe 3000 kilometers into it. And that was a crazy adventure. I am never doing that again. <laughs> I'll come back to India, but I'm not going to do it on a tuk-tuk. And of course, uh, a few years later, I was getting a hankering for adventure. And I thought, you know what? Let's do this again. And so in 2014, I went back and did it again through the adventurous. And again, this is all for, for charity. So every time before we leave, we raise money for charity. And then we complete this crazy adventure. And I was writing about it on our blog uh, to keep friends and family uh, up to date about what we're doing and whatnot. And uh, the same thing happened. Like, okay, I did it. I'm not going to do it again. And then 2018 came around. I did it again. So... Uh, nowadays, they just have uh, one start point, one end point. They kind of go back and forth between them. But at the time, they had a few more routes. And so every time I signed up, I did a different route. And so between the three journeys, I went about, went over 11,000 miles around India on this, this took to, which I think 16, 16,000 kilometers, something like that. Yeah. And, you know, each time I went with someone different, each time was a different route, each time we had different crazy stories to tell. But I can honestly say, as I learned how to pilot the vehicle, and I learned more about India and whatnot, it became easier. It's definitely easier as I went along. Um, you know, I finally I learned how to shift gears and not destroy the engine that helped a lot. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was able to see a lot of India more so than you know, most of my Indian friends have ever been to nowadays that I know. Traveling at that slow speed, being able to pretty much stop anywhere, park anywhere, uh, really helped. And, you know, People would pull up to us in their car and they'd be like, come to my house for tea, you know, stuff like that. Just, you just, it's so wild. And, and our, our rickshaw is painted like a tiger with the Detroit Tigers baseball team logo on it, which my friend who had done the Mongol rally with a few years ago did for us. Uh, he's an artist. So it was just like wacky. People would see us coming and get all excited and like, what are you doing? What are these two white guys from America doing on a tuk-tuk driving it across the country? So you're able to make some some very quick friends there. And, you know, again, we relied a lot on the kindness of strangers when it came to finding a place to sleep for the night or how to fix the rickshaw or what direction to go in and whatnot. You know, you're, you're very much at the mercy of the locals and most of them don't speak English. And so there's a lot of sign language or you know, body language gestures and whatnot involved. I did not learn much uh, Hindi because like we were traveling through a lot of different states at quite the speed. So you would go to places where that's not even the main language. I mean, it is the main language for uh, for India as, as a whole. But you go to all these places where they don't speak Hindi. So, uh, you know, it, it would just be tricky to learn the language of every state or region that we went into. Uh, so that wasn't possible, unfortunately. But, you know, even without that, not speaking the same language, uh, we were able to make a lot of friends and we got to the end every single time. And we really had no major problems besides those caused by ourselves. <laughs> so I'm going to turn the conversation back to languages really quick. You've said in the past that you have learned another language by quote unquote faking comprehension. So can you explain a little bit more about what this looks like and how it works? Yeah, so especially in Japan. So I, of course, wanted to connect with people, but my Japanese was still pretty basic, pretty rudimentary. So I would go out to 
you know, bars or wherever other places, other places where people congregate and I'd make friends. And I, I was pretty outgoing, even though I, honestly, I grew up pretty shy. I, I was not the person to go out, you know, in high school. I didn't really do any group activities or sports or, or go to parties or anything like that. So Japan was really the first place where I opened up uh, socially. And so going there, I noticed that it was kind of a fact of life that if you're trying to talk to somebody and you kept saying like, what, what was that? Can you repeat yourself? What was that? It made them really not want to talk to you or the conversation would quickly kind of tire out. And so what I did, and I wouldn't even say I did this consciously. It's more that I just kind of developed this uh, unconsciously is that I would just react to their body language. I'd laugh when they laughed or, and I would use the little bit of language that I knew whenever possible to show that I was listening and I enjoyed talking to them and whatnot. And, and of course, like sometimes this would bite me in the ass when they say, you know, oh, well, blah, 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 blah. And they would talk to me and I wouldn't comprehend it. And you know, it's one of those classic kind of funny stories where you're like, yes. And then they're like, what? And you're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so sometimes it wouldn't really work out. But a lot of times, you know, especially at like bars and stuff, people just want to chat and they just want to like talk to you and not necessarily ask you a lot of questions. They just want to talk and have someone listen. And so in those times, at those times, I would just, like I said, laugh when they laughed and imitate their gestures and use whatever language I could. And I would say easily for the first year I spent in Japan, I didn't know half the stuff that was being said to me, but I could kind of get through intonation and gestures and whatnot, what they're trying to get across. And, and I, I did my best. I just wasn't afraid to mess up or to fail or to you know, not understand everything. And I just kind of went from there to gradually noticing that, oh, wow, like I can actually understand what people are saying to me now, just after a long periods of doing that. That's just, just like Benny says uh, all the time, it's just going out and using it, it's just using it, put yourself in those places where you use it. And uh, that will, you know, even if it's not the country that the language is being spoken in, as, as Benny's done many times, uh, but just using it uh, as much as you can will will get you there. You know, some people are more uh, book learners and whatnot. I'm more experiential. And I've, I've known that a lot of my friends are the same way. And so it's just a matter of you finding out how you learn best, I think. So you were coming from a background of being shy, but with all of these experiences of like just saying yes to like a marathon across the desert when you haven't even done a marathon before and just talking to random people who you don't necessarily have good communication skills with to completely repair your engine. How do you not feel intimidated by these situations to, to kind of push through your inner roadblocks to prevent you from having that confidence? Because that, that can be very intimidating like even without the language being an aspect of it, just for people in general to approach strangers. But doing that in a completely foreign country when you don't know their language can feel like they, they are going to hate me for this. So how, how do you get around that? Well, one, nobody's ever going to hate you for attempting to talk to them, especially if you know a few words in the language, especially the languages that are lesser known, even the pleasantries, hello, goodbye, thank you that kind of thing will win them over in a heartbeat. And they'll be very surprised, you know, even a word or two. As far as, as what gives you the confidence to kind of go out and, and do some of those, those things. I mean, I think that 
that these crazy adventures I was in for for one example is kind of a forcing function to to just making it happen because there's no other opportunity there's no other choice if you are stuck in the middle of nowhere and your rickshaw is broken or your car isn't working what other option do you have you can't just sit there and die like you have to actually converse with someone or try to converse with them and try to to fix the situation and I I kind of like those crazy adventures that I've been a part of because of that like not I wouldn't necessarily be the type of person to do that on my own in regular circumstances. But I like that it is, it forces me to do that and to kind of like see what I'm made of mentally and sometimes physically as well. Uh, whereas in the US uh, where I, I was born and, and I live a lot of the time, you know, it's it's easier to kind of get around and I know everything and and there's not those types of challenges that I'm faced with when I put myself in these these silly situations abroad. So yeah, I kind of I kind of like that aspect of it because it just kind of like shows you what you're made of. That's uh, just a, a good forcing function for that. Now I've I've already given an entire episode just to talking about my Kilimanjaro experience. So I I will recommend people check that out. And if people are interested in themselves, uh, like Scott just ran the best program and I, there's no way I would have made it to the top without him. And the Safari was excellent. So it's why I highly recommend people check out his stuff and you'll see links to uh, Pomoja Safaris in the show notes. So you can check that out for yourself. But one of the final questions I'll ask is what are your future plans in terms of expanding your business and your cultural immersion and your future travels? Uh, yes, I, I have I have a few partnerships all over the world. A lot of them have kind of uh, been paused because of COVID, and and now finally we're seeing a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, um, as far as international tourism goes. And so, uh, I would say with the two main companies, uh, with the safaris, we're we're continuing to build that up. Safaris, Kilimanjaro trekking, and whatnot in Tanzania, we're building that up uh, as far as increasing uh, capacity and increasing our sales efforts because it's open. They're looking for people to come in and, and the people that work in tourism have had a really rough two years, uh, two years plus at this point. So we're trying to send business over there, if nothing else, than to just give these people work so they can provide with their for their families. Um, and we're also looking into a few more uh, charitable options where we may even start our own uh, nonprofit over there because it's a big problem where people go over there and they go to a school or an orphanage and they decide to, let's say, sponsor a child uh, or give money to a school or orphanage. And it's really unfortunate, but the people, these directors that do it, the adults, they take uh, a portion of the money, a large portion. Oftentimes, I just talked with my partner about this last week. Unfortunately, we had an incident of a, a prior guest of ours that was giving money uh, not through us, but through a company she had gone with uh, years ago. And that person on the ground was taking 90% of the money. This has been something we've heard about for years. And so I think it would be it would be great if we could somehow change that where we could find some way to get the money to the people that need it in the most direct way possible. So we're, we're kind of looking into that. And then with the with the Eat Japan, um, we're still doing it for friends and family only right now. Uh, we have to see the changed landscape over there. Some of the places we used to go to are out of business, unfortunately. 
So it's a matter of kind of getting on the ground over there and seeing what the new post, uh, not post COVID, but, you know, after these last couple of years, uh, you know, how it's changed the landscape over there and see how to change the itinerary and whatnot. We already have two trips sold out September and March. Uh, so I'll be over there. I'll be spending a few months and checking out to see uh, where to go from here. And uh, if our plans that we had made in 2019, 2020 are still the same plans we're going to carry out going forward. But yeah, hopefully we, we kind of, uh, become more of a not just friends and family type operation, uh, but we're going to offer day tours in certain cities and whatnot and allow other people that aren't necessarily connected with me personally to experience Japan through the food and drink. So we actually have one more question for you before we close out, and that is, what is your definition of language hacking? Language hacking to me is finding out how you learn best and then going about learning a language in that way. And everyone's so different. Um, some of the stuff Benny does, I know is not the best way for me to do. And some of the stuff people ask me, like, how did you learn Japanese or whatnot? I, I can only say how I did it. And I say, you know, caveat, this worked for me. Everyone's brain is different. You know, try it a few different ways. See how some people that learn the language very well be it Benny or other polyglots or just your friend, uh, how they learned it and just try it a few different ways uh, because the same technique doesn't work for everyone. Very good. Well, this has been a fascinating chat. And like I said, links to all of Scott's stuff will be in the show notes for today's episode. So thank you very much, Scott, for sh sharing all your stories with us. And uh, I'm very glad that I could have you on. And I will... Wish everybody listening a very happy language learning. Thank you to the both of you. I uh, really enjoyed it. Happy language learning. All right. So at the end of each episode, Benny and I like to share something that we took away in our conversation with our guest. And these are things that we pick out as something that you can implement into your language learning over the next week to try out and see how they work for you. So Benny, what was your takeaway from this episode? Because uh, Scott has so much experience immersed in other cultures, I like what he emphasized because it's something that I've definitely dealt with a lot, and that's to react to body language. And to be able to understand that body language is its own means of communication that can help you fill in a lot of the gaps. You can scope from their intonation what kind of a question that they're asking you. You can see if they're leading you to potentially say yes or no. And you will have to guess, but it's kind of this whole language of intonation and gestures, like he said, that a lot of the times it, it is going to help you. And sometimes if you get it wrong, it's not the end of the world. Everyone's very patient with you. And like Scott said, he has had so many experiences in so many countries, even just using the bare minimum and even trying to communicate just through those signs, uh, relying only on, on English if they had any, and he was still able to make progress. So I like that this is emphasized because it's something I've definitely found in my travels that you do have to understand that this Nonverbal communication is just as important and can give you a leg up. What was your takeaway? I would have to say it was learning from his courage to just go out and do things that he knows are going to be difficult. Things like the Mongol rally, things like traveling in the tuk-tuks across, you know, India and things like that. Those are things that I would love to do, but I'm always too anxious about doing something like that. And it doesn't necessarily even need to be as big as something like that. Um, I, there's several situations just 
smaller scale day to day that I get nervous about and I avoid doing them just because I'm nervous. Uh, So I would say that my takeaway is like this week, I'm going to go and just do something that I would normally be nervous about, whether it's like initiating a conversation with someone that I don't know or going and trying something that I wouldn't normally try or even for me who is totally introverted and, you know, anxiety, like sometimes even just like fitting that one more thing into my schedule, like I'll stress about like, how am I going to fit this in? It's really close to this other activity. Just so like, just like pushing myself and saying, I'm just going to do it. And if I show up late, I show up late and not stress about being late because that's like something that stresses me out so much. So like going and putting myself out there in events or, you know, even when I have an opportunity to use a language, sometimes I'll hear people speaking something that I speak and I just won't even acknowledge that I speak that language because I'm so nervous about it. Um, And so taking any sort of opportunity like that to kind of just push myself out of my comfort zone. And even if it's not necessarily language related, building that skill can be applied to language learning when it comes the time to apply it to language learning. So just practicing kind of extending out sort of what I'd normally be comfortable and just go do something like something that I want to do that I've held myself back from doing, just go do it. And that's my takeaway for this week. So once again, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, you can leave us a review over at languagehacking.com slash review. And of course, you can listen to the extended version of this episode where we talk about many more things, go in depth, and Scott even mini interviews Benny and I, and you can get access to that over at languagehacking.com slash Patreon. All of the links, resources, and everything else mentioned in this episode are available to you as a part of the show notes. And until the next time, happy language learning. Happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Katie Pascoe, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and happy language learning.